You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I've been more autobiographical in this novel than I've ever been before. What I've done is basically cast the people I love the most in a psychological suspense story. Author Armistead Maupin, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Well, happy Pride. We're kicking off LGBTQ Pride Month with a conversation with one of the leading literary figures of the gay rights and gay pride movement of the late 20th century. Armistead Maupin started writing stories for a small regional newspaper near San Francisco in 1974, the year he came out. Those stories were known as Tales of the City. And finally, in 1978, he published a collection of those stories in a book called Tales of the City. It was the first of several volumes featuring that set of characters. Drawing on his own experience as a gay man, Maupin populated his books with a broad community of very diverse characters and backgrounds. Importantly, Maupin was also one of the first writers to directly address the AIDS crisis in his writings. I first met Armistead Maupin in 1987, but the conversation you're about to hear took place 13 years later when we talked about his novel called The Night Listener. So here now from 2000, Armistead Maupin. The Night Listener is something I re refer to as a kind of uh, thriller of the heart. It's a uh... It was inspired heavily by the film Vertigo, which I saw at the age of 15 and continue to be influenced by. I've always wanted to write a novel that, that dealt with uh, uh, the real complexities of human emotions, but was at its core a mystery story, a psychological suspense story. So that's what I've attempted to do here. It's basically about uh, a man named Gabriel Noon, who tells stories on the radio late at night on NPR. Um, and he has fans across the country, but one of them, specifically a 13-year-old boy uh, in Wisconsin, uh, connects with him because the boy regards this voice on the radio as a kind of father figure. The boy himself has had a terrible history uh, of um, sexual uh, and uh, emotional abuse by his parents, and, uh, but he's been rescued by a woman who's become his foster mother, and he's basically looking for a father, and he sees one in this radio storyteller. The storyteller himself is in an extremely vulnerable position because he's just parted with his partner of 10 years and uh, doesn't know where his life is going. And he begins to talk to this little boy on the telephone. And the mystery grows out of that. I've been very coy about telling much more <laughs> than that because I think it spoils the fun of the novel. You need to, to let it uh, reveal itself uh to you as it unfolds, but the the bottom line is that nothing is what it appears to be. I was just going to say, suffice to say that there's plenty of mystery in a book like this, uh, that you can peel back those layers of that onion and you'll find something else completely different right underneath. I've tried to give it that kind of uh, uh, the twists and turns that I really enjoy finding in a novel. A, f a friend of mine said, this isn't... Um, the kind of novel you can say, don't reveal the ending. It's more like don't reveal the middle. <laughs> because like Vertigo, something happens halfway through where you um, are completely, I hope, completely uh, confused about where you're heading. Well, what kind of roadmap did you set out for yourself when you started writing? Did you know where all the twists and turns were likely to be? No, I didn't. I, I surprised myself, which is half the fun of it. I love, love it when that happens. I, I'd rather... Uh, 
surprise myself than almost anything. I have a general road map, but I don't know what the detours are. And sometimes things arise um, uh, in the course of writing. I really didn't know the end, for instance, until I arrived at it. Uh, and then it became obvious to me what it should be. But um, uh, I don't think I'd be able to write a novel if there weren't some surprises for me because it would be too much grunt work. It is grunt work as it is. I mean, I, I always com compare it to, to laying mosaic, where you're putting in these tiny little pieces and you don't get back to, to stand back and admire your handiwork for a long time. So it takes real discipline and it's, uh, it's drudgery a lot of the time. Sometimes it almost seems like the, you're, you're out there in the, f in the wheat field tramping down the marks so that from an airplane they look like uh, the alien landed there. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty good uh, metaphor. That's exactly how it feels. <laughs> but you've got some wonderful, wonderfully memorable characters in this book, as, as in your other books as well. Do the characters spring to you fully formed, or do, or do you learn about them along the way as well? Well, I've, uh, I've been more autobiographical in this novel than I've ever been before. Um, I, I consider it at least emotionally autobiographical. It's true to, to major experiences in my life. What I've done is basically cast the people I love the most in, in a psychological suspense story. So I've, I've fleshed them out because I know them. Uh, uh, my father is in it, my 85-year-old father. My uh, ex-partner, Terry Anderson, uh, is, is a character in it. Um, there are a number of, uh, there are a number of, uh, figures in this novel that are, that come directly from my own life. Others come from my work. There's actually a, a 22 year old bookkeeper in The Night Listener who was born in the Tales of the City series, my other novels. Uh, so that was a particularly odd thing to have happen, to have a character who resembles me, who's interacting with, um, w with a character I invented which I think is in keeping with the whole theme of The Night Listener, because it's all about the nature of storytelling. Who's telling what to whom and why, and what do we believe in the end? What is the truth? Um, mm -hmm. And does it matter if we feel something strongly in our heart, whether or not uh, uh, the facts are borne out? Well, does it matter to Gabriel, really, what exactly the literal truth is? Well, I think at the end, without giving it away... Um, it really doesn't. It matters to him only that his life has been changed, that he's felt something new in his heart. Uh, and um, uh, it's hard to talk about, really, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> without, we, we, without completely blowing the ending, and I, and I try very hard not to do but, that. But, you, but he does tell us at the outset that he has a tendency, shall we say, sometimes to embroider a little bit. Yeah, he calls it jeweling the elephant, uh, based on a, on a story he once told his partner about a friend who was supposedly married on a jeweled elephant, and turned out to be not the case at all, and he had somehow constructed this in his own head. That term, by the way, was invented by my ex-partner, Terry Anderson, who caught me in just such a fabrication. And and uh, and I found it's identify. very well. We can. I mean, especially people in the arts, people who tell stories, people. Um, your whole life, uh, I'm sure yours is as well, uh, is about collecting anecdotes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when you collect anecdotes, uh, you do what Gabriel Noon does. Uh, he says, uh, I, "I'm like a magpie. I save only the shiny stuff. Mm -hmm. It's of no use to me if it doesn't serve the geometry of the story." And that's very much the way I'm built. I, I tend to 
to anecdotalize my entire life, and anybody who gets near me should be warned. <laughs> After this short break, Armistead Maupin talks about the hazards of writing autobiographically. Now back to my 2000 conversation with author Armistead Maupin. That's what makes you a good novelist. Now, it works less well for those of us who need to be in a truth-telling position. Well, I'm glad that I'm a novelist in that way. I, I never could write. I mean, I don't think I would ever have written a memoir. This, in some ways, is a memoir because I've written about my mother's death, the death of my best friend, uh, my breakup with Terry, um, a number of things that actually happened to me. But I'm so glad that I don't have to be held to it because if I were writing it in the memoir form, I would feel terrible obligation to get everything exactly right. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're writing a novel, it only has to be em emotionally true. Plus, if it was a nonfiction thing, people, interviewers like me could say, on page 321, <laughs> yeah, you make a reference here to some sort of whiskey. <laughs> well, you know, actually people do do that. Anyway, <laughs> they'll say, now, when you were in the back of that truck with the trucker, and I said, wait a minute, I wasn't in the back of the truck with the trucker. <laughs> Gabriel Noon was in the back of the truck with the trucker. But that's the risk you run, isn't it? When, yeah. you, when you acknowledge that it, it is some broadly autobiographical, true. and yeah. people may not understand you mean emotionally autobiographical, they mean, may mean, well, you were literally I, in the truck. As soon as I think uh, a novelist even slightly remember, uh, resembles the character <laughs> he's writing about, I assume that everything is true. I do the very same thing. I mean, I intellectually, I know that's not a smart mm -hmm. thing to do, but... You can't help but be curious in that regard. And I think in some ways um, writers are a bit coy when they try to retreat from the autobiographical because that's, uh, I mean, it's a way of keeping the reader interested, uh, of thinking that they might actually be glimpsing your own life. Is then Peter Lomax also something autobiographical or, or something real, I should say, let's put it that way, or is that a product of your imagination? Peter Lomax, the little boy, is uh, was inspired by something that happened to me, but it's so far removed from... The story I actually tell that I don't ever um, talk about that because I think it uh, um, it would be un unfortunate to confuse that with the fiction. Of so, the for story. all intents and purposes, Peter is 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 product just of your imagination. Uh, not not entirely, but um, for in the in, purposes in of the this interview, yes. <laughs> in the greatest proportion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, well, it, it must have been. Difficult then, I guess, to figure out exactly. Well, you know, coming back to where the arc of the story would take you, you must have had a thousand different options as to where the arc of the story could take you. Yes, I did, and that's the fun of fiction. Uh, you know, when I was a little kid, when I was eight years old, I would put myself to sleep by telling myself a series. Uh, I had like three serials running in my head at one <laughs> time, uh, and I would decide on a given evening which story I would continue. And it's always been a way that I've uh, amused myself. Even now, when I'm working on a novel, the fun of it comes uh, just before I go to bed. When I'm in the sack and about to go to sleep, I think about the novel and I wander around in it in my head. And I allow myself the, the true freedom to explore the story. Um, when morning comes and I have to sit down in front of the word processor, um, that's when the discipline comes in. I know, all right, here's the scene you have to write and this is the way you have to write it. This is the information you have to get across. Now make it pretty <laughs> and uh, get to work. You know, it's not, it's a, it's a, it's tough. It's a disciplined act. Uh, the nighttime dreaming thing is, is the other side of it. And that's where the fun comes in. 
Is that something anybody can do, or do you do that simply because you're a well-polished and very good novelist? Well, thank you, sir. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do it because it works for me. It's just the system that works for me. I, I have to keep playing, or I lose the spark. Uh, David Hockney, the artist, is a, is a good friend of mine, and every time I go to his studio, um, I'm inspired by him because he plays. He shows you the latest toy he's got, the latest color printer, or the uh, the latest technique he's using with his painting, or or some wonderfully crackpot theory he's got going about fifteenth uh, century um, painting, uh, and his his fervor over it, and the sort of childlike joy with which he embraces it all, like a kid playing with a paint box, is completely inspirational because it reminds you that that's what it comes from. That's what that's what we have to be. That's what the the artistic mind is about: is getting back to that that child in yourself that gets to gets to play with whatever whatever form uh, you've chosen. Because ironically enough, it's only through play that you can arrive at the mm -hmm. at the purest stuff. If you're too rigid about the discipline, um, uh, imagination, there's no room for imagination. Now let me toss another question to you from the near the beginning of the book, so that we don't accidentally give something away. Uh, at the outset, Gabriel's a little uncertain about whether he has a future as as a writer, whether whether his well has dried up, as it were. Mm, mm. Is this something autobiographical as well? Do you? Share well, I have fear? those moments. I have those moments. I've had them on this book tour because at the end, it, usually at every, uh, by the time I've arrived at this point, uh, there's the feeling of oh, I don't know if I'm going to ever do this again. <laughs> I mean, the process is so long of writing the novel and then promoting it and then getting out and touring with it. And But then, you know, you come to your senses and think, well, what are you going to do? You know, you've got to pay the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, you like it, really. You like it. You like telling these stories. You like having people show up and listen to you read. Um, so, no, I'm, I don't I feel very lucky. I've I've landed uh, in the job that I belong in and. Uh, that's the best any of us can hope for out of life, I think, something that gives you fulfillment and um, and feels connected somehow with your own personality, and that's the way I feel about writing. As my dad used to say, it could be worse, could be out digging ditches for a little bit. That's somewhere. exactly right. <laughs> Every time I get around to sort of bitching about a 22-city <laughs> book tour and people start rolling their eyes, and say, oh, that must be really tough. You know? <laughs> well, you say, well, it is tough. You have to be on an airplane every day. Oh, yeah, traveling the world, having people come. Staying and, in fine hotels. Yeah, staying in nice hotels, having people sit in your feet and listen to your stories <laughs> must be hell. And then I then I really s sit back and think, yeah, that's absolutely right. Shut, shut the hell up and get to work, you know? <laughs> Armistead Maupin celebrated his 78th birthday last month. He lives in New Mexico. Now, I have to inject a personal note here as well. This was not the first interview I did with Armistead Maupin. It was actually the third. The first time I met him was in 1987. And I've still got that interview. I listened to it the other day to digitize it for the purposes of this podcast. And I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed and ashamed at the questions I was asking him, which I realize now given the hindsight of, what, 35 years, were stupid, naive, and unintentionally disrespectful. I can't use that interview on this podcast. So instead, I chose the 2000 interview, which, in my opinion, was a much better interview anyway. So there you have it. And you can find easy Amazon links to some of Armistead Maupin's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's also where you'll find my interview from the early 90s with 
a baseball umpire, a baseball umpire who made history in his own way, Dave Pallone. I think I will be the person that will be remembered that started the trend to get the gay community out of the closet in professional baseball. And be sure and listen to my interview from about 15 years ago with a Hollywood icon from the 50s who only came out about 15 years ago. Tab Hunter. The audiences were changing. They were more youth-oriented audiences then. They were ready for Tab Hunter. Well, not only for Tab Hunter, for <laughs> Natalie Wood, Jimmy <laughs> Dean, Tony Curtis. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the man who went from nearly being a high school dropout to being one of the 50 most influential scientists in the world, 50 most influential people in the world. My 2007 interview with the man who led the effort to map the human genome, Dr. J. Craig Venter. I thought science was about the pursuit of truth and uh, asking questions about life and trying to answer them, and I've tried to stick to that pretty much my whole career. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.